Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. production. Happy February. Hello, happy February. Good morning. You're back home. Good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night. Yes, I am back home. I had flight delays mm-hmm. because of uh, snowing and icing conditions, and the planes were getting in late, and I ended up the 24-hour layover and missed my plane by seven minutes, a connection in Phoenix. So I ended up spending a day in Phoenix and had dinner with three lovely uh, local midwives. I put out, um, my friend Cassie put out a feeler on Facebook, and three people said yes, and they came over to the hotel, and we all had dinner. It was great. Lovely lemonade out of lemons. (laughs) Good job. Yeah. So, and the workshop, I assume, how many people attended? I think there were 23. Lovely. And it was great. I want to thank April in Fortville, Indiana, for hosting at her lovely office building. It was great. It was a really great venue and just another great time. Just have, I'm so lucky that I get to meet all these people and we get to share stories. And as I say to them, and as I say, you know, our listeners on the podcast, storytelling is a great way to learn. And they're sharing stories with me. I pick up things every time I go to one of these seminars. Sometimes I even incorporate it into the teaching, but it was, it was great. And yeah, you know, sometimes you don't get enough stroking in life. Um, (laughs) Right now I'm getting a lot. Oh, good. You deserve it. People are fanboying on me and it's kind of fun, actually. Yeah. You deserve it. You've been working hard advocating and standing up for what's right for a long time. And so we're we're lucky. You're lucky to have us, but we're so lucky to have you. Yeah. And I got to hear about a set of a multip who had breech and vertex twins mm-hmm. and delivered in Ohio. And I got to sort of be a part of that story indirectly. And I want to thank Emily and her team for all the wonderful things that they did for this lovely lady and her husband and their family. And it was really interesting. She went to about 40 weeks and three days and the twin A was complete breach and weighed nine pounds, seven ounces. Yeah. <laughs> was she a multip? Yeah. 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 Awesome. And, and twin B was cephalic and weighed seven pounds, 10 ounces. Wow. So that's 17 pounds of baby. Like my grandma, she had that too. That's a lot with of her, baby. Yeah, with their six and seven, then she's like five one or something. Yeah, it's a lot of baby. It just shows how miraculous our bodies are. Yeah, and uh, although, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just, it just can be done. And the letters that I get from people saying that because, oh, I want to read one by the way. Um, this is from uh, people at the Central Texas Birth Center. I'm just going to read it real quick. Dr. Stu, we just had the loveliest primip breach at the Central Texas Birth Center with Sally Gonzalez and Lauren Foreman, who hosted your Austin workshop, was also there for good measure. Mama was amazing and baby made all the textbook maneuvers all on her own. It was a thing of beauty. To watch this smart little baby make those moves to get out on her own was incredible. I had your words and teachings playing in the background of my mind as the birth unfolded, and it was such a gift to have your teachings come to life right in front of me. Could anything honor me more? I I can't think of anything. Thank you for giving our team the skills and confidence to support mothers who seek this option. As this mother walked out of the birth center to go home, feeling great, overcome with pride and wonder, 
at what she had just accomplished, I couldn't help but reflect on how her experience would have been so vastly different in the hospital. She'd have had major abdominal surgery. She'd have been in the hospital for three days and may have thought she or her baby were broken in some way. She was not broken. She was powerful and capable. And with the support of her birth team, she did what most in her situation don't get the opportunity to do. Mm -hmm. Birth her baby on her terms among practitioners who know breach is just another variation of normal. Thank you for what you do. And thank you for teaching others how to do it. The art is not lost. It's make it's just making a slow comeback. <laughs> so, I love that. Too I slow for that. me, but we only do what we can do. You know, it can be frustrating. You know, I've been leaning into that a lot in the last week or so. Just well, I'd say more than a week, honestly. But you know, I sit here sometimes thinking about you know something to post and what to write and what content to share and. You know, sometimes I get a little, um, I get a little discouraged because I do feel like it's so slow, you know, when you've been advocating for something for 30 years and the statistics are so blatantly clear and people just keep doing the same thing, you know, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is insanity. And I, I just feel, you know, like that quote that, we read last week from David Hayes, you know, it's like feeling irrelevant sometimes in the current culture, you know, but then we get these beautiful messages. Like I got a message this morning that to us saying that, you know, these people are listening to us and feeling like some words of wisdom really help them have the confidence and lose the fear to be able to follow their dreams, you know? So I know that we're we are making a small ripple. I think probably you can relate. Sometimes I wish it was a tidal wave. <laughs> yeah, there's not going to be a tidal wave. The people that run this system are are benefiting from it and they're going to cling to it really hard. But yeah, women are waking up. You know, I love when, you know, I've seen the Heads Up documentary, The Disappearing Art of Breach Delivery, you know, 60, 70, 80 times. I still, like I say, I still cry every time I see it. But Elliot Berlin in there says something really you know, poignant. He, he says that, you know, that these things aren't right and the women know it and they are, and women are figuring it out. And even if it's a smaller percentage of women, some point it's going to reach critical mass. And, yeah. and that's how it goes. It's sort of like a, um, you know, a chart where it's going slowly, 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 and then it will go, it will go up. That's, you yeah. know, that's sort of what happened. That's how we ended up where we are today. What they did to it in the re in reverse back in the 1920s. Right. Right. A uh, couple quick things along that line about changing attitudes. We talked a little bit about, are you waving at me? Yeah, I didn't check in yet, but okay. <laughs> I'm on a roll. See, I have my outline here. Okay. Check in and then I'll, then I'll go off. You must not I, be too interested in how I'm doing. Oh man. Now you're really, now, now you're really putting me on the spot. Of course I'm interested in how you're doing, <laughs> but you usually don't have a problem waiting for me to ask. <laughs> I'm in a mood. I'm in a mood today. Okay. Well, now that I know that, will you please tell us how you're doing? <laughs> so I am about a week and a couple of days away from going to Bali. So that's really exciting. I'm preparing for that. And I'm waiting for my last mom who's due in January to deliver. And she's a mom who's already had two births in Australia with midwives. And it's just really, you know, it's one of those things where every time she's gone into labor, she's been swept by the midwives. And 
here we are at 41 in three days. And, you know, she's like, I think that that's just what my body needs. And I'm, you know, it's frustration that I have of like, no, you're probably your body just needs more time. But, you know, she's starting, of course, to feel the pressure of like, if I don't deliver by this weekend, I'm going to have to go to the hospital. So I did do a sweep yesterday. And then I got a text from her this morning. Nothing's happening. Can we do more things? So I think I'm just kind of balancing all of that today too, of, of wanting to support her desires, her informed decision-making, and then also really wishing that there was that magical thing that you could say to somebody to just be like, you're doing great. Just be here now. And it's all going to be fine. You're going to have your baby this week, you know? So that's where I'm at today. Well, I apologize for not reaching out. It will never happen again. <laughs> okay, then roll on. Okay. Well, yeah, this is sort of a mind addict emptying sort of day. I have a little bit of an addition for one of our letters from last week, or maybe two weeks ago. We Caitlin from New Zealand, and we talked about how they did fetal scalp sampling and they got a, numbers of 3.4 and 5. And I said that that's not compatible with life. And right. a listener, Corin, sent me information from New Zealand that they actually cool. don't use pH. They use something called lactate. And, but interestingly enough, a lactate less than 4.1 is basically a pH greater than 7.25. And that's okay. So they just recommend, you know, observation for that. So the first one of 3.4 was normal. The second one of five was birth, you know, that's consistent with a pH less than 7.2, which isn't terrible, but it said birth indicated rapid deterioration in fetuses of fetal compromise requires obstetric review of timing and mode of birth. So when the story says that they got pHs of 3.4 and 5, I don't know in what order or how far apart because it doesn't say in Caitlin's letter. But the 3.4 was an indication that baby was fine. So again, interventions occur sometimes when they're not necessary. I like the fact that they were looking for reasons to let her keep going, though. So I can't, I don't want to be... I just want to clarify those numbers because it was confusing to to those of us in the United States who use pH. Okay, um, good. Thanks. That's cool that she sent you information. That's awesome. Well, we do have great, great fellow travelers. I mean, we really have. Wait till, you, wait till we, we get do. to some letters today. You know, our topic today is going to be talking a little bit about ultrasound, pros and cons, risks and benefits, indications, non-indications. Before we get to that, though, I just want to mention two things, uh, two podcasts that I were on recently. If you, if people can listen, go to the Radiant Mission podcast, and there's parts one and two with me talking, being me. <laughs> and then just coming out this week, which will be two weeks ago by the time this our people hear this, is the Birth Cafe podcast with Angel. And what we do is... Candace Owens did a podcast about her experience in the hospital and about GBS and about being interrupted all the time. And then a Dr. Jones, who has a fairly large following, critiqued Candace Owens' podcast. So Angel asked me to critique Dr. Jones's critique of, doc, of Candace Owens' podcast. So on and on it goes. So it's actually, I listened to it this morning to proofread it or proof listen to it, I guess. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good discussion between Angel and I about the differences in some of the models. So I would encourage people to go to the Radiant Mission podcast with Rachel and Rebecca and the Birth Cafe podcast with Angel and look out look the look up the episodes that have me in them, okay? Okie dokie. Okay. So I have a couple of you no, know, we started our new um 
uh, email line, right? Birthing Instincts Podcast at gmail.com, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we got quite a few letters. We can't obviously read them all. I've got a few over here that I wrote down, respond personally, because they're either personal or they're, or they're too involved and they can't, you know, like it's not something that we can really get into, or it's a topic that we've already done or something like that. But I'm going to try to at least send a little acknowledgement to everybody who's, who emails us just to say, we got your thing. I don't want it to be an automated response either. Cause that's just, I hate automated responses. Yeah. It's not us. Right. Okay. So this first letter, you want to add anything? want to make sure. Did I miss anything? So far, so good. I was okay. looking for something about pushing, but I don't know if I'm going to find it. Yes, go. Okay. So this is from Joanna. It says, hey, guys. By the way, you don't mind being called guys, do you? That's a, just a Midwestern thing to do. That's what I say all the time. Okay. Nah, First I'm, off, I'm not easily offended. But I offended you today. <laughs> Here we go. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> First off, thank you for the wealth of knowledge and entertainment you provide with your podcast. <laughs> mostly 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 entertainment so far today i guess all right hopefully keep going i'm a natural family planning instructor and a nurse one of my clients asked for my opinion on something her ob told her her ob told her that her uterus takes up to 12 months to recover from birth this was posed more as a try not to get pregnant for a year after you give birth statement my client did have a c-section for her latest birth g1p1 I gave the best advice I could based on my experience and then all, and then also my experience as a mom of two. I didn't really think the uterus needed 12 months, but more like 12 weeks. But maybe with the C-section, this could change things. I told her to talk to a pelvic floor therapist for a little more intake from their point of view as well. Just wondering what your thoughts were. Okay. What, what are your thoughts? Um, to space out a pregnancy for 12 months. 12 months or more. And say, say, first of all, let's discuss somebody who hasn't had a C-section, who just had a vaginal delivery. Okay, so it is normal, obviously, for us to get pregnant and have babies. And if we just follow the rhythms of our bodies, we would probably get pregnant for most people who are healthy and in homeostasis more frequently than uh, 12 months if we weren't using anything. However... Pregnancy is very taxing on a woman's body. So it depletes a lot of your, uh, a lot of the nutrients in your body. It's hard on your bone density. It's obviously hard on your pelvic floor and all of that. So spacing your pregnancies out 12 months could be optimal for your body to recover. And then obviously the, the strains of your body from breastfeeding, right? So trying to get pregnant again, when all of that is happening can be very depleting to your body. So I think most midwives agree that optimal would be 12 months. Yeah. And I would say that the, the physician is sort of right in the fact that, but he's right for the wrong reason. He said that the uterus takes 12 months to recover. That that actually isn't true. Right. But the body takes time to recover because of all the depletions that you just, you just talked about. Now with cesarean section, there is data that suggests if you conceive within six months of your previous delivery, that there's a greater likelihood of uterine rupture. So mm -hmm. waiting six months and actually waiting 12 is probably even better. It, the longer you wait, the lower the risk, but the risk isn't really high, except for those first six months, it drops pretty dramatically and it gets back into those lower numbers. But yeah, so it's not. Yeah. And I would say too, because of the wacky world that we live in, if you are attempting to find a provider who's going to support your VBAC, 
you probably have more options if you have the spacing. Even if you're okay with the risk, you're looking if you're looking for a provider to support your pregnancy, you might just open up your options if you wait. Yeah, that's really, you know, I wouldn't even have thought of that, but that's actually a really good point. A really good point. Okay, so that's that one. It goes back, they go right into the round file when I'm done. Because my desk is so filled with stuff, it's unbelievable. Okay, this one's from Veronica. I I like this one because it has sort of our sense of humor in, in it. She says, Veronica says, good morning, Stu and Bliss. I'm listening to the podcast that was put out this morning on my way to work. And what you guys are saying regarding normal pregnancy and labor and birth being medicalized is really bringing it into focus something I've had my, on my mind lately, which is that obstetrics is a specialty, right? Do you agree? Uh-huh. uh-huh. And when I say that, what I mean is cardiologists is a specialty or cardiologists are specialists, but we don't go to the cardiologist simply because we have a heart. You don't see a GI specialist simply because you have intestines. You go to a specialist when there are concerns that are out of the norm. And sure, even if there have never been signs that you have a heart condition and you have never been to a cardiologist, there is still a very slight chance that you could drop dead of a heart attack. But it doesn't mean that you should have been seeing a cardiologist all along without cause. Right. No one would ever say that. Well, if he'd been seeing a cardiologist, even though he was low risk, this might not have happened. (laughs) Well, that may be true. It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, I just wanted to share this, that perspective. It had been forming in my mind, but you guys made it more clear to me. Thank you, Ronica. And it's like, Ronica, you just made it more clear to me. (laughs) So thanks. (laughs) What do you think about that, Liz? Yeah, well, what I tell people is an obstetrician is, if you look up the definition, it's a doctor who specializes in pregnancy-related illnesses and surgery. So in that respect, I believe that an obstetrician is a specialist in dysfunctions of labor and birth and pregnancy. I think that a midwife is an expert in normal physiologic birth and the dyad of mom and baby. So we're specialists in our own right, but I completely understand what she's saying in terms of like how we look at it and that doctors should be the ones that we're referring to when something goes outside of normal. If we could get more people thinking like that, and that analogy makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay. You don't routinely go to a cardiologist simply because you have a heart. Right. <laughs> you don't need to go to an obstetrician simply because you're pregnant. Exactly. Yeah. That makes that's makes sense. So everybody just take that quote, tell all your friends. Pass <laughs> make it a, on. Somebody make a meme. Okay. <laughs> Maybe Ronica can make a meme. Somebody's got to make a meme. We got to get it out there and make it go viral. Okay. okay. You have one. Hashtag. Have, what's that? Hashtag. Hashtag, <laughs> Hashtag what though? <laughs> Hashtag, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I look at that. I'm not a hashtag kind of guy. All right. (laughs) You got one from Letitia though, I think, right? Right. So Letitia says, hello. First of all, I want to thank you both for the great job you do. Thanks to the both of you and to the pain-free birth because I got the courage to decide that I wanted to become a mother. I had always been so afraid of hospitals and the idea of giving birth. But after listening to so many of your podcasts, reading the book, a fearless pregnancy and taking the course, I can now say I am finally ready for embarking in this beautiful journey. That's awesome. I'm also planning on signing up for the membership with Dr. Stu once I've become pregnant. Quick question. Based on your experience, do you recommend I get insurance for the pregnancy? I'm a healthy 33-year-old female and planning on having a physiologic birth at a birth center with midwives and doulas. I feel comfortable paying the expenses 
of the birth center, the labs, and the doula out of pocket, but I'm not sure if it's best to have insurance. One of the reasons I'd rather not have insurance is because I'm under the assumption that if you have insurance, many physicians will feel tempted to do unnecessary interventions just for billing purposes. Also, I don't want insurance agencies involved in my pregnancy. I want to know your feedback regarding this. I know it's a personal choice, but I'm interested in what you have to say. I hope you can reply to this email. Thank you so much for changing so many lives and for helping the human race to get back to their roots. We need more souls like you. I love that. Yeah. Helping the human race to get back to their roots. I think I'm going to put that on my uh, on my new marketing. <laughs> I love that. So again, we're talking about you know, that all sounds very logical, but you also have to be in touch with the reality of the culture that we live in. And the reason that I normally recommend that people have insurance for their pregnancies, although, you know, most of the time I've, I've paid out of pocket for the providers that I want is that if you do end up having to get transported to the hospital, which, you know, with the first time mom, it's higher and that the bill that you could experience from a vaginal birth or a C-section or a NICU stay, which are all the kind of the contingency plan Bs, it could be very expensive. And I don't think that's something that you want to pay out of pocket. So that that would be my two cents. Yeah, I agree also. The thing about insurance, if you're going to, and I agree you should have it because you never know. And that's, that's you know, I'm not a big fan of the what ifs. But this is one of those what ifs that can really be an issue, especially not maybe necessary for you, but if your baby ends up in the NICU for some reason, that can really run high prices. The, the issue, of course, is what kind of insurance to get. And if you have the option of looking into the health sharing ministries, th- that insurance is by far the, the best thing that you can get. First of all, I think the costs per month are lower. The coverage is pretty great. They're very pretty good about responding to questions. It's not They're not huge like Aetna or Blue Cross where it's hard to get a human being sometimes. And, and, you, and you want to avoid, if you can, an HMO, which is going to limit your choices of who you can see and where you can go and and what options you have. So if you can't get a health sharing ministry, then getting a PPO type insurance probably makes most sense. That sounds great. Okay. So Bliss, let's talk about one of our sponsors, Needed, and all their great products. Yeah, and uh, hope you guys caught the episode with... Uh with Julie, where we talk all about her births and relationship and how she developed this company, because, you know, Stu and I are really particular about how, who we bring on to partner with and Needed is an amazing company and they have really put a lot of effort into making sure that you guys are getting amazing, good quality products. And we want to pass that on to you. One of the things I really love about Needed's line, besides the attention to detail is that they do have a powdered prenatal vitamin for those of you who, you know, maybe don't really like to take pills or are feeling nauseous. And it's something that you can add into a smoothie with beautiful collagen protein that they have available as well and, and get you need. And then they also have that amazing line of uh, men's products too. And preconception, partnering the preconception before you're actually even pregnant. So, and then what about this new product that they just came yeah, well, out with you? First of all, go to thisisneeded.com and check out their whole menu of different yeah. items and, and pick out the ones that seem the to fit your needs. But they have a new one, what's called egg quality support. It's for women considering getting pregnant. 
and it combines five targeted and optimally dosed antioxidants to improve egg quality and support related fertility outcomes. This is one of the only egg quality products and the only egg quality support on the market that does not contain overlapping ingredients you'll find in a prenatal like folate. In addition, we've created our egg quality support plan to even further optimally nourish those trying to conceive. The egg quality support plan pairs our new egg quality support with our standalone CoQ10 in the active antioxidant form ubiquinol. So try their new product and try all their old products and support them because they support us and go to uh, go to thisisneeded.com. Use the code word birthing instincts, all caps, and you'll save 20% off you know, one time order or the first three months subscription at thisisneeded.com code word birthing instincts. Thanks needed. Thanks needed. One more. And that this one's from Audrey. And Audrey says, Dear Bliss and Dr. Stu, you should have a title. <laughs> I'm a midwife. <laughs> you should say, Dear Midwife Bliss and Dr. Stu. That's what it should say. Okay. Goddess. First off, because otherwise, you know, it just gives. Did you hear me? What? So, goddess. That's this title. <laughs> Go- goddess? Oh, god. I thought you said got it. Goddess. Oh, but goddess. I'm, I'm really joking. If, if everybody called me Goddess Bliss, I'd feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> it's a joke. <laughs> she's writing a note it's gonna stick now you watch we're gonna start getting letters that say dear goddess bliss and dr stew that's what's gonna happen <laughs> you're in for it now okay <laughs> first off i'm so incredibly grateful that i found your podcast i am hooked and love listening to you both i'm currently 20 weeks pregnant with my first your podcast along with the down to birth podcast we love them have me fully committed to a home birth and i'm so excited to go into this so much more educated because of you Anyways, I'm 35 years old. Uh oh, oh. <laughs> tick, not, tick, 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 tick. <laughs> not. And have been sleeping on my back my entire life. Mm-hmm. I've tried every configuration of pillows. Oh, this is funny. I'll, t- I'll make, I'll tell you in a minute to make side sleeping comfortable, but it's just horrible. Lately, I've been sleeping half reclined on my couch. I just want to know the actual risk from people I actually trust, like mm-hmm. Goddess Bliss, <laughs> of back sleeping while pregnant. I appreciate you both so much. Much love from snowy Minnesota, Audrey. The reason I made it, I laughed is because I knew she was from Minnesota and she talked about pillows. And that's mm-hmm. where that My Pillow guy is from. I don't know if you see, <laughs> see his commercials, but there. if you watch uh, Fox or if you watch sports TV, sometimes you see My Pillow commercials everywhere. <laughs> what do you think about sleeping on your back? Or being on your back or waking up on your back. Okay, so this is a bigger, bigger picture that I want you guys to think about. So your body will give you feedback if there's something wrong. So what I and sleep is a very important part of our health, making sure that we can rejuvenate and all of that while we sleep. So the number one thing I want my clients to do and I and our fellow travelers to do is to listen to your body. And if you are most comfortable sleeping on your back and you feel like you're going to get the most restorative rest, that's what you should do. So there is so much fear out there about um, putting too much pressure on what your aortic, is that what it is? Yeah, Yeah. your aorta and your your vena cava, which run right behind the uterus, right? Yeah. So you have to imagine if you were cutting off circulation to one of your major 
arteries, vessels, your body would give you an indication that something was wrong. You would wake up, you'd have numbness. So, um, but I tell my clients, if you're really nervous about it, if you're not sleeping well, because you're anxious about it, tuck one pillow under one hip so that you're not directly. But what I see is people put themselves in a position on their left side and they don't want to move. And what we're seeing is more dysfunction in the pelvis, more pain in the hips, more pubic dysfunction. So your body is going to respond to you moving around. And the best thing you can do to prepare yourself for labor, a physiologic birth, is to trust your own instincts, to not always be looking for outside sources about what's happening inside of your own body. Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. That was mic uh, drop. Mic drop. <laughs> so now you're you now you're our your wise goddess bliss too. So <laughs> Oh, you guys. We're gonna keep we're gonna keep adding adjectives. Funny. He's teasing me because I gave him a hard time in the beginning. I would okay. tease you anyway, but yes, that's probably part of the reason I'm teasing you more than usual. We have also something really exciting and new that we've done is we have been asking you guys to call our new Google Voice. So today we're going to listen to our very first recording. Hey, Dr. Stu and Bliss. I so appreciate your guys' podcast and all of the free wisdom that you guys give out. I am a student midwife, but I'm going to keep my name anonymous. Uh, I just had a question and not not really a question, but maybe just some wisdom to shed. My preceptor is a um, nurse midwife and I am doing a direct entry process to be a CPM and a licensed midwife in Texas. And my preceptor at almost every single birth, she offers to artificially um, break the waters of the mamas. And uh, it's something that intuitively feels really wrong and it's really hard to kind of stand by and watch her offer this. And I will say that when she does do it, it often does bring the baby down quicker. But I just kind of wanted to hear your guys' thoughts on when it may be appropriate to rupture membranes artificially and just kind of what your thoughts are on people kind of routinely doing this. And something that really bothered me one of the last times that she did it was she kind of scolded me for not having the Doppler ready and having some other items ready in case something went wrong, like a prolapsed cord or something. And she got, she told me we always have to listen right after rupturing the membrane um, because of these risks XYZ. And she did not share with the client what the actual risks are of rupturing the membrane. She had mentioned risk of infection going up to some of the moms, but I don't think that she really listed all of the risks that come with this. So if you guys could just maybe tell me (laughs) what the true risks are that you've seen and if you've seen any cord prolapse or any big issues with artificially rupturing membranes and when it actually is appropriate, because now I'm worried I'm on this big swing of I see this person offering it every single time 
in my head, I'm thinking this is never appropriate. So when is it actually appropriate? Sorry for the rambling. Love you guys. Hope to hear from you on the podcast. Have a great, great weekend. So uh, thank you, Anonymous, for that call. You know, rambling is one of those things that Bliss and I understand really well because, or I do at least, because I often go off and ramble. So don't feel bad about rambling. Bliss, what do you think about all this? Well, I mean, I think there's two things, right? There's like the part of being a student and a preceptor that we can get into a little bit. And then also, I think you know, and I think our, our listeners know how I feel about rupturing membranes. And if you've forgotten, you can definitely go back and look at the episode that we did, 283, All Things Amniotic, where we talk about this. But just as your instincts are telling you, there are ramifications, there are consequences that can happen when you rupture a membrane artificially. And that the other thing that you didn't mention was the potential of a baby getting kind of lodged into a malposition because the baby's not hasn't done its full rotation or hasn't worked out its asynclitism or something like that. There could be uh veins and arteries going through the the membrane that could get ruptured and that could cause a problem. Um, we're talking about increased infection that can happen if we have a stalled labor. So there are many things that can happen. And so leaving trusting our bodies to know the right like what is the safest way for this baby to come through for me is the way that I, I would like to see more providers practice. Um, most of the time the bag will rupture right before the baby comes out as the mom is pushing. And right. so and there has to be my perspective, a wisdom to that. Right. And and the thing is, is, is sometimes it's a tool in the tool bag um, when, mm-hmm. when there's a medical indication for it and with informed consent of the mother a mother that's struggling or a mother that's frustrated or a mother that's stalled out a little bit, one of those things you can offer them before transport to the hospital or something like that. And you've tried some other things like breast pump or kissing or whatever we, you know, the other things that you guys recommend all the time, then it's, it's a tool and a tool bag, but to do it routinely. And that's a word that bliss and I hate because nothing really should be done routinely. You should not be doing something all the time. The risk of cord prolapse, if, presenting part is, is palpable is very, very unlikely. If you have a presenting part really high and you have a fairly large bag of waters in front of it, you can do something called needling of the membranes where you take a spinal needle and you poke teeny little holes, a couple, two, three holes in the, and let the fluid ease out slowly while your hand stays in there until the presenting part comes down against the uh, remaining membranes. And once the presenting part's there, then you can go ahead and use your amnio hook or your other thing to rupture the membranes. But, but again, you, you need to have a, a reason to do it it's not something that should be done routinely. And I think that as a student, you're in a tough position because you are, you know, you're learning from your preceptor. It's not for you necessarily in your place to always do things to say anything, but that doesn't mean that you have to take that and incorporate that into your practice when you finish. So if you have a ability to speak to your preceptor and, and it's not an intimidating process, you certainly could ask her why she does that. And maybe she, you know, that's just something that's worked for her over the years. And that's what she wants to do. And that's the way she practices. And as long as you sense that she's giving these women informed consent, and if you don't think she's giving adequate informed consent, then you're sort of stuck as a student. What do you think about that? Because you, yeah. Yeah. I think we learn as, as students, we learn just as much by witnessing what we don't want to do as what we do want to do. And it is hard, but it really does 
fortify how we want to practice. I think having different exposure from different preceptors so that you can see different ways of practicing so that this isn't your only experience would be really helpful. And I definitely encourage you to have communications and ask questions from your preceptor when you're not in a birth, ask to go out to lunch or something and inquire, maybe bring some evidence, ask, you know, ask the questions. And, you know, if we're rushing a birth, what is the rushing for? Is it for the mom? As, as Dr. Sue was saying, is she, you know, really struggling? Is she suffering, which we never want a woman to suffer through labor. That's not the point of this you know, and we believe this multip with a bulging bag, like it really could help her get to the finish line. Like if that is something that we're doing for her or she's requesting it, that's one thing. But if you're doing it because as a provider, you're impatient or rushing, then I would say, you know, maybe check yourself and go do what you need to do to get yourself centered again so that you can really be there for the individualized care that is available to the mom. That's yeah. I mean, we, we, we really believe that nature does things for a reason. And if membranes rupture early, well, then nature decided that. That's one thing. But but ultimately, the fluid is there for, for many, many reasons. And yeah. yeah, unless there's a medical reason for it, it's probably not something that you, I think you knew that when you wrote to us and you just wanted affirmation. So you're getting it. There you go. Anonymous. And we loved, loved hearing your voice. And thanks for being the first one to participate in the podcast in this way and many more to come. I think it's fun to hear people's voices. Okay, so you know what time it is right now? It's time for us to talk about Element, our amazing sponsor. Um, It's a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS like us. That's why we're such a good team. And it has potassium, magnesium, and salt, which is all the things that our body needs to be in homeostasis without sugar. So it's really good, you know, they um, talk a lot about how it's good for people with you know, keto diets and stuff like that, which we don't encourage in pregnancy, but it's still wonderful for breastfeeding and you know, limiting sugar intake is a great thing for pregnant moms. And then also us as birth workers, like, you know, we have long nights, we need to really take care of ourselves and and figure out how to balance everything. And this is a great thing to keep in your bag. And I think you said that you're going to be taking it with you on your trip coming up. Yeah, you know, I'm going to Haiti with Mama Baby Haiti. And one of the things they suggested on this long list of things to bring was electrolytes. So the raspberry salt will be going to Haiti. Maybe I'll take a picture (laughs) of it in front of a palm tree or something like that. Yeah, Dr. Stu's trip is being supported by Element. (laughs) So it comes in nine flavors, grapefruit salt, watermelon salt, citrus salt, orange salt, raspberry, yay. Raw unflavored mango chili, which is Bliss's favorite, lemon habanero, and chocolate salt. So if you go to drinkelement.com, that's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, you'll get a free sample pack with any order. So that's drinkelement.com backslash birthing instincts. Please support them because they support us. Thanks, Element. Thank you. Okay, so what we're going to do now is we are going to talk about our topic for the day, which is ultrasound. (laughs) For the second time. (laughs) You guys, this is so funny. So Sue's the one who always hosts us on Zoom. And, you know, sometimes we have to stop things for whatever reason. We stop the recording and then usually says recording in progress. If you've been on Zoom, you know what I'm talking about. So we, we did this whole beautiful thing for you guys. And then he pushed the end of the recording and it said recording in progress. And he said, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) 
So we're doing this again. And hopefully it's going to be even better because the other one is gone. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little bit about ultrasound and in, in all humility here. <laughs> we are we are we are human. Oh well, I'm I no I'm I'm human. Bliss is a wise goddess. So <laughs> bliss is above the human spectrum. I'm very human, by the way, people. Okay. So you know, ultrasound is something that's used like it's part it's part of the uh the culture now. I mean, you can't get away from ultrasound in pregnancy. And even if you decided that that it was something that was harmful, and we're going to discuss about it a little bit, it's going to be almost impossible to eliminate it from from common use because because it's a risk benefit thing. Bliss, there mm-hmm. there there are a lot of benefits to ultrasound, and I think in the first recording you asked me what they were, <laughs> <laughs> and there are things like uh, picking up a blighted ovum um, early, picking up placenta previa, uh, picking up a twin pregnancy and, and looking at chorionicity, which is so important, picking up an anomaly that might be something that's not compatible with life or not compatible with a home birth or, uh, you know, growth issues, which, which will, you know, are not, again, we're not talking about routine. We don't want to necessarily recommend, we're not recommending routine ultrasound, but most practitioners that I know of in the home birth world, uh, do like to have their clients have at least one ultrasound. And that ultrasound is usually, the, if they're going to have one, is going to be the 20-week scan. And it's, and it's to look at the, the lots of different things, like we just talked about, the anatomy and the fetus and the placenta and how many fetuses are there and that sort of thing. And when we're done talking today, some people may feel like, well, I got to really think about whether I want ultrasound being done on my baby or not. And so it's going to be a risk-benefit thing. And not all people see the same risks and benefits the same way. In other words, it's not ethically uh, consistent to say that all women who see all women who are given the same advice will come to the same conclusion. That's not possible. Absolutely. Right. And, you know, I, I have my own personal experience as a woman who had three pregnancies and, uh, you know, as a provider of supporting many, many, many families. And in my midwifery training, you know, what they talked about is that there are no studies that are conclusive that can be able to show whether or not the exposure to this quote unquote radiation, which you'll talk a little bit about, is is altering our cells. And if the baby is having an experience that might be negative, whether that's emotionally or really kind of changing the way that they are they're developing. So they showed in in midwifery school um, the image of when you are using a Doppler or ultrasound that the cells actually are reacting and changing shape when they're exposed to this. And so we don't know the long-term exposure and it's really hard that they're not really studying it because you have to have, you know, half the cohort that doesn't have exposure to any ultrasounds at all, and then be able to study them long-term and no one is really invested in doing that. So I think that that just kind of like when we talk about vaccines and pregnancy, there's not definitive information one way or the other to be able to tell you. So I think you have to use the information that you receive and that you seek out and then also use your gut instinct. And that is a legitimate way to make decisions about your health care and the care of your baby. And, you know, I had in my first pregnancy late, and I don't even remember why, but I had, I was with midwives at a late term ultrasound and they had something come up and they said, you know, we're not going to be able to tell you if this is a big deal or not for like three weeks. 
And so I had those three weeks of being pregnant and wondering if there was something wrong with my baby and then come to find out it was absolutely nothing. And so I have that personal experience. And then in my third pregnancy, I decided I wanted to go through my entire pregnancy without any ultrasound so that I could just experience being pregnant. And my faith system was that of God is going to give me what I need and I don't want to interfere with this process. And I really just want to enjoy being connected to my baby with my instincts without having all of these external forces. And so when clients come to me and have a similar perspective, I respect that. And so if that's something that feels important to you, you should find a provider who can honor that for you. And I think that that you, you are right. It's harder and harder to get away from some of these interventions. And just like cesarean sections and Pitocin and all of the things that we can interfere with used judiciously, ultrasounds can be a beautiful tool. But I think the other thing that we should think about is when we, when we choose to do tests and diagnostics, and we're not doing it standard, as you said, or routine, we're doing it individualized, and you're looking individually from your own values, is this going to change the direction of care? So a 20-week ultrasound could be very valuable if you're having an out-of-hospital delivery because we can pick up maybe some anomalies or something like that. Or in the case of our friend Desiree, who ended up having, you know, accreta and all of these things that that could have been very serious if they hadn't been caught up, caught. Um, but if there, if we're not going to be changing the course of direction through the information that we receive, maybe it's something that 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 particular test or procedure could be eliminated. So that's a good way to kind of evaluate through a lens through as well. It's a general tenant in in premise that we talk about sometimes at the Breach Birth Seminars, that you only order, only order a test if the result is going to change your management. Yeah. Now, in a, medical model, in a medical model, the problem with testing, of course, is that it dictates management a lot, and it also leads to a lot of unnecessary uh, interventions in management, too. So again, it's, right. a, it's going to be an individual decision. For some people, seeing their baby every time they go in for a prenatal visit is going to be reassuring to them and other people mm -hmm. are going to be on the opposite spectrum. And maybe right. after hearing some of the things that I'm going to talk about now, people will either affirm their beliefs or change their mind, or at least do, uh, want to dig or do a little bit more research. So, I mean, everybody sort of knows the benefits of ultrasound and we've just sort of gone over them a lot, but, but often the, the downside of ultrasound is the gray nebulous thing that doctors just blow off and say, well, you know, there's, you know, ultrasound is safe you know, like cesarean section safe and like, you know, vaccines are safe and everything. They, they're just, they're just spewing or regurgitating information without a lot of data. And the problem is there isn't a lot of data on the safety of ultrasound uh, as used as we use it today. The last time that they studied humans with ultrasound was in the seventies and eighties and uh, maybe in the early nineties in China. And then at that point, there was no longer any, but he's studying it on humans anymore, partially probably because of human subjects, ethics and also partly because it didn't nobody wants to find out that we don't need to do ultrasound anymore because there's no economic advantage to doing nothing and that's an important thing to just in general know about studies is like if someone's not interested in finding out the information they're not funding it and usually that has to do with they're investing money to make money so if there's no money to be made in stopping ultrasounds then there's probably not going to be anybody wanting to study it yeah. And so I had some time and I, I've had these books on my shelf for a long time. And one is by a guy named Jim West. It's called 50 Human Studies. And the other is 
the dark side of prenatal ultrasound and the dangers of non-ionizing radiation by Janice Barcelo. And I'm going to refer to them in a little bit. But first, I wanted to just, I did a lot of digging for this podcast, and I found an editorial that's out of Germany called Obstetric Ultrasound, Can the Fetus Hear the Wave and Feel the Heat? Which is what, which if we're talking about the downsides of ultrasound, these are the things that most people are concerned about. Yeah. And, you know, again, anybody who's who's had a pregnant belly or works with pregnant bellies has experienced a baby either moving away or having an acceleration. So there's this common sense part of it that they're experiencing something, whether it's sound or sensation. Right. And what's true and untrue is very hard to decipher sometimes. And there are studies that say one thing, but then are they good studies? And there's studies that say another thing, but they also may be questionable studies. And so science, as we all know now, is is very difficult to interpret. But this was a an editorial that sort of took all that into effect. And that's why I thought it was valuable to bring to the listeners today. Um, it starts like this, quote, fetuses can hear ultrasound and the sound is as loud as a subway train entering a station, unquote. This statement originates in a single report in a non-peer-reviewed journal. From time to time, the popular press or various pregnancy-related websites repeat this assertion, or a worried pregnant patient inquires about the truthfulness of this statement. And a second often quoted concern is that ultrasound leads to heating of the amniotic fluid. Okay, so diagnostic ultrasound employs a pulse sound wave with positive and negative pressures and the team of the Mayo team, I, I'm assuming that's the Mayo Clinic, quoted in the New Scientist, predicted that the pulsing would translate into a tapping sound, or excuse me, a tapping effect. Uh, they stated that the that they picked up a hum at around the frequency of the pulsing generated when the ultrasound is switched on and off. The sound was similar to the highest notes on a piano. They also indicated what when the ultrasound probe was pointed right at the hydrophone. Now, they did these studies on, I'm assuming, unpregnant uteruses, because obviously they can't do these studies on humans anymore. But when they pointed the, the ultrasound probe, it registered a level of 100 decibels. I'll get to that in a minute. Although the operating frequencies used in sonography are inaudible, it is possible for the pulsing rate to be heard, thus falling in the audible range. In other words, to say that babies can't hear ultrasound might be true, but to say that babies can't hear the sound that's coming from the transducer, which is then converted into a pulsing, tapping sound, may also be true. I mean, well, that that may actually occur. So it goes on that says, uh, ultrasound is a pressure wave with a frequency beyond or ultra that detectable by the human auditory system. The human ear can discern sound at roughly 20 to 20,000 cycles per second or hertz. The frequency of the diagnostic ultrasound are roughly 1 to 10 megahertz, which is about a million to 10 million cycles per second or hertz. So way above it. So when the ultrasound probe is on and sitting in the room, nobody can hear it. That's human. All right. Now, I don't know if a bat or a dolphin would be going nuts. I really don't know. But I know that humans cannot hear that sound. And fetuses have the same ear mechanism that we have. But this and by the way, um, it is a form of energy, and it's, uh, the and such may have effects in the tissues that it transverses. So it's not necessarily innocuous. The fact that it transverses the tissues does not imply that it causes damage or harm, and that's the thing that's hard to ever prove. You can't really do a study that's going to prove that. So you just have to sort of interpret this stuff for yourself and put it all together and come up with a plan for yourself. The two. Yeah, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, I have a hard time sometimes trusting 
when we say that a baby doesn't experience this or that, because, you know, we, we've even heard them say when they do a circumcision procedure where we're actually cutting a baby, they're not going to remember the pain. We don't know these things, you know, and, you know, you think about it, Sue, you ever take a, a little kid to a movie and you notice how they put their hands over their ears? They're their hearing is so much more sensitive than ours just by watching how they behave in loud situations. So even though, yes, they are human and we should treat them as a human, we don't, we don't know what their experience is. So Good point. The two major mechanisms for bioeffects are thermal and non-thermal. The definition of a moderately loud sound is 60 to 70 decibels. And that's defined as high urban ambient sound, like walking down the street, normal conversation at a distance of one meter, or living room music. In comparison, quiet conversation is 40 decibels. So when Bliss and I talk like this, it's a lot less than when I talk like this. A railway <laughs> diesel engine passing at 45 miles per hour at 100 feet away is 80 to 85 decibels. And a rock concert is 110 decibels. I suppose it's depending where you sit. <laughs> there have been a few publications describing harm to fetuses exposed to elevated levels of ambient noise, particularly industrial noise, specifically in the aircraft and textile industries. But while there have been reports of impaired hearing in infants who were exposed to ultrasound in the womb, several rigorous studies have disproved that notion. Now, a couple things to say about that. First of all, there have been a few publications, but not many, that show that workers, female workers who are pregnant and work in a textile factory, or say they're roadies on a, on a rock, with a rock band or something like that, that it's going to cause their fetus any damage. I'm not sure that that's necessarily something that you can say or doesn't say, right? So this, and the same thing goes with ultrasound. Um, the problem is, what does rigorous studies mean? And rigorous studies to me is, again, gets back to that point where I don't know how to interpret that. But ultimately, I'm going to say this over and over again, it's a risk-benefit thing. And sure. having no ultrasounds in pregnancy is certainly a choice, but it's also a choice of a practitioner not to feel very comfortable with that. And so compromise sometimes is necessary, although the ultimate decision does belong to the pregnant woman. But there are things that you can do when you do an ultrasound, and they'll, they, they say them, but I think I'll talk about them right now. You can limit the time that you're exposed to an ultrasound. I can do a 20-week ultrasound and look at the things that are important in probably about two minutes of actual ultrasound time. So in other words, I take my transducer on, I go on, I see the heart beating. I record the heartbeat for like four seconds, freeze it, and measure that. Then I go up to the head and I get a, a head circumference or a BPD. But all you have to do is get a picture of the head, and then you can take all those measurements while the transducer is not emitting anything. Or you can just actually take the transducer and hook it back into the handle on the machine so it's not sitting on the mom's belly. But mm -hmm. what normally happens in an ultrasound when you go to a radiologist's office or a tech does it is they're scanning away and they're scanning and scanning and scanning and scanning. So one of the things that you could do is you could theoretically ask them to turn the machine off as much as possible or just be very, very brief. You can also, because the frequencies are higher and more intense when they use color flow, is that mm -hmm. I know that this is sacrilege to many of my maternal fetal medicine colleagues, but for routine screening, they look at everything. They're going to look for little holes in the heart. They're going to look at blood flow. They're going to look at all this. And those things from our perspective, aren't necessarily going to make a lot of difference, but they feel like they're, they're now obligated because of the way the guidelines are put out for maternal fetal medicine and, and scanning is that they have to turn on the color Doppler and they have to look at these things. And that's much more intense. And sometimes it takes a while when you're trying to find a middle cerebral artery and you're scanning the baby's brain with this thing, and it's only an inch away from the transducer. 
So I would say that, you know, question why it's necessary. When you go to see the radio, when you go to see an ultrasound tech and they want to do it and they want to turn on the color flow, say, ask, ask them, why are you doing that? Or maybe ask ahead of time. I prefer that it's not turned on, right? Not use that unless you find a reason that you can explain to me why you need to do it. Also, also 3D ultrasound. So three oh and 4D too, right? Three and 4D ultrasound. 3D, it's 4D ultrasound is just 3D in real time, but it, it's a higher intensity of frequency. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you want to see your baby's face, that's fine. It's your choice to do it, but know that it's a little bit higher and maybe ask for one picture or two, not 15 pictures or 20. And I've been guilty of that too. I learned a lot mm-hmm. from going through this stuff for this podcast today. And, you know, I'm not going to go back and undo what I've done, but I think that I would be more likely to give better informed consent to people. And a lot of people are still going to choose the idea that, well, I want the pictures. <laughs> so they're going to choose the yeah. pictures. Yeah, that's totally up to you. Right. Okay, so the report mentioned above suggested that diagnostic ultrasound is detectable at measurable levels in the uterus. There is no independently confirmed peer-reviewed published evidence that the fetus actually hears this and responds to it or is harmed by it. But as Bliss said earlier, just anecdotally, when you're scanning, sometimes you see the baby move away. Now, the question is, was the baby doing that when they're not scanning them? You have no way of knowing, right? Right. Right. So we just, we really just don't know. Then, then they go on and say temperatures increase, temperature increases of one degree centigrade are easily re- reached in routine scanning. Now, is a one degree centigrade elevation in temperature significant? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But again, if you, if you limit the time that you're being scanned or that the transducer is actually emitting, it's non-ionizing radiation, then you can probably lower that increase in temperature. And it is a form of non-ionizing radiation. And the idea that we're going to limit all non-ionizing radiation from our fetus is a pipe dream because we live in the era of 5G and Bluetooth and microwave ovens and all the others and and all the other stuff that we're being bombarded with daily. So there's, you know, we are, that is what we're living with. And that is a risk factor that we have in our world. And we know that there's an increased rate of, of childhood illnesses and autoimmune disorders and autism and, uh, these sorts of things. But the question is, there's so many possible factors that do that, that how can you pin one down? You can only try to eliminate as many as possible. You know, is it GMOs, genetically modified food? Is it vaccines? Is it ultrasounds? Is it cesarean? Is it altered microbiomes from antibiotics? Or many other things that, you know, we don't even know, we don't understand. But clearly something's happening to our children and our children's health. And is ultrasound part of that? Maybe. But again, correlation and causation don't necessarily go along together. And just because we're doing more ultrasounds and we're seeing the more childhood illnesses and stuff like that doesn't mean that they're directly correlated. But it is something that you can do to, to lower that. Um, when ultrasound waves travel through tissue, its intensity diminishes with distance. So again, the further away from the probe, the, the less possible effect it can have. Um, I think in our, our first go around about this, Bliss, why don't you say something about the gestational age of the fetus? Because you made up, you brought up a good point. Yeah, there's this great article that I was reading earlier today too. It's Benefits and Risks of Ultrasound in Pregnancy by an MD out of a fetal medicine specialist out of Detroit, Michigan. And it says here, um, they're talking about the risks and benefits. It says, as in the case with most medical procedures, however, its performance carries some risk, misdiagnosis on one hand, possible undesired effects on the other. Um, you, mentioned about, you mentioned about the first trimester being something that 
Yeah, they're saying that between um, 10 and 12, you know, that most of the development in embryology happens before 10 to 12 weeks. So we try and limit exposure to as many harmful things as possible. And ultrasound is one of them. And so there's not a lot of science that actually supports having one of those early ultrasounds. So if you're feeling comfortable with your dates and your last menstrual period and all of that, and you don't need a dating ultrasound and you don't need to check about the viability of the pregnancy, avoiding that early ultrasound could be a really good option. Okay. Yeah. And I would agree. I mean, obviously there's certain things that are, when you pick them up, it's great that you pick them up early, but would it have changed anything? It might've changed the way, if you find a blighted ovum at seven weeks, then, then yes, it changes a lot of things because at least the person knows. And when she miscarries, say at 11, four weeks later, she, she's not thinking, oh my God, I'm miscarrying a, you know, a three month fetus. But ultimately is that, you know, for some people that's very important, but again, there are risks to this. There, again, anytime you use a technology, there's going to be risks. So you have to weigh them against the benefits. Okay, so they say fluids have very low absorption characteristics, and therefore the risk of temperature elevation of the amniotic fluid is minimal. But bone, for instance, which is more dense, may have more effect like that. So when you're scanning, you may not heat the heat the the fluid up, but you might be heating up the mother or the baby's bones. The only available study on the topic did not demonstrate any increase in temperature in the amniotic fluid when performing diagnostic ultrasound. So I know that this has sort of been just a quick overview of the thing. But the conclusion is, while ultrasound is a sound wave which can produce mechanical effects and temperature elevation in tissues that it traverses, and it actually is non-ionizing radiation more than it is a sound wave, the risk to human fetuses when using diagnostic ultrasound appears to be minimal if certain rules are followed, such as performing a scan only when medically indicated and using the lowest output power consistent with acquiring the necessary diagnostic information. In other Mm -hmm. words not using Doppler color, Doppler flow every single time you have and making sure that your machine is up to date. Newer machines tend to be a little more efficient than the the older machines and keeping the exposure time as low as possible for an accurate diagnosis. Great. Yep. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about what's in these books. I just highlighted a couple things. And one of them is a quote from our friend, Sarah Buckley. Love her. Although ultrasound may sometimes be useful when specific problems are suspected, my conclusion is that it is best is my conclusion is that it is at best ineffective and at worst dangerous when used as a screening tool for every pregnant woman and her baby. Right. Mm-hmm. Again, we talked earlier in one of the letters about something being routine. You know, that's just not necessary. Uh, treating the baby as a separate being. Ultrasound artificially splits the mother from baby well before this is a physiologic or psychic reality. This further sets the scene for possible but to my mind artificial conflicts of interest between mother and baby in pregnancy, birth, and parenting. So I love that. Wise words from Sarah Buckley. There's also quotes from mm-hmm. Jennifer Margulis, our friend, and Kelly Brogan. Another thing it says here, which, which I found very interesting. This was a quote by the author uh, regarding a Dr. Mendelssohn who uh, wrote something in 1981, but he says, my earliest awareness of diagnostic ultrasound hazards arrived in 1981 from Dr. Mendelssohn and later from the articles in Midwifery Today. Despite the eloquence of these authors, I found it incredibly difficult to bring the topic effectively to anyone, male, female, stranger, or friend, the naive or skeptic. I had met a nearly insurmountable block on a personal level. I was devastated. And he's talking about 
ability to talk to people about the possibility that ultrasound has problems. The difficulty was nearly unfathomable. I spent much time trying to understand the obtuse nature of my friends with regards to this topic. A common response was an accusation of, quote, fear-mongering, unquote. Few seemed to realize that they were already thoroughly mongered <laughs> by medical messages, especially ultrasound to diminish their fear. As far as I've been able to determine, the block is, in, is the result of ubiquitous product marketing, reaching critical mass and becoming self-supporting by the population. In other words, people don't think they can have a pregnancy without ultrasound anymore. They've right. done such a good job right. of marketing. That's what you were saying. Like, it's really hard to separate it out because we're not, we can't go back to before that, but you can, you actually can grow a baby and deliver it out of your vagina without an ultrasound as reminds me of like Dr. Shavira, when I went to do a hospital birth with him one time, he had to tell the nurse about declining an IV. He said, I'm pretty sure that this woman can have a baby out of her vagina without an IV present, you know, but you're right. We just get so you know, it's so dogmatic to believe that like they go hand in hand. They can be separated. Women are trained throughout their lives directly and via embedded advertising to fear birth, to fear themselves, to fear complications. They are taught to see routine ultrasound as their best assurance. Fear of birth has been a part of mainstream education since ancient times. For example, in Genesis 3.16, promotes the idea that human birth is an unnatural process, painful and miserable, multiplied beyond that of any other animal. Quote, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Quote, that's from the King James Version. <laughs> Some would argue <laughs> that the priests of medicine have secured this prophecy. Mm-hmm. Right, they have. With much humor, Dr. Robert Mendelssohn reveals how fear is promoted to sell religious artifacts and rituals, though they are actually medical products and methods sold as fear reducers pain eliminators, and lifesavers. The flock assumes medical protocols are backed by hard science, but their medicine is often a political and market-driven soft science that awes the fearful, excuse me, awes the faithful with unproven, unsafe technology, devices, radiation, and pills. The faithful take umbrage at the mere possibility that the birthing process could be more than a painful obstacle. The word obstetrician insists on obstacles. And then George Bernard Shaw's observation rings true. He says, we have not lost our faith. We have transferred it to the medical profession. Amen to that. And then in this other book, Janine, Janice Barcelo's book, the there's dark a quote side. from Nicola. What's that? The dark side. <laughs> yeah, it's the dark side of prenatal <laughs> ultrasound. I'm sure she named it that on purpose. Uh-huh. I like it. This is a quote from Nikola Tesla, uh, the famous mm-hmm. inventor. Mm-hmm. Alpha waves in the human brain are between six and eight hertz. All biological systems operate in the same frequency range. The human brain's alpha waves function in this range, and the electrical resonance of the Earth is between 6 and 8 hertz. Thus, our entire biological system, the brain and the Earth itself, work on the same frequencies. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you knew that. It is very interesting. If we can control that resonant system electronically, we can directly control the entire mental system of mankind. So that is a uh, scary, scary little thing. And then she says, what is ultrasound? And she says, ultrasound is not sound. It is non-ionizing radiation. Medical personnel choose to refer to ultrasound as high-frequency sound waves rather than radiation because it sounds less dangerous. Diagnostic ultrasound is radiation governed by hospital radiology departments and x-ray imaging, which is an interesting thing because where are the ultrasound machines in the hospital? They're in the x-ray department. 
So they're right. they're all considered part of radiology, and radiology is dealing with radiation. When marketing right. ultrasound to patients, the word radiation, however, is omitted, and the fact is denied. That's marketing. Good to point that out. And then the last thing, the last quote, I mean, this is a big, thick book. It's like 300 pages, but ultrasound is a type of radiation. But unlike x-rays, ultrasound is called non-ionizing. That's what makes doctors almost universally believe it's absolutely safe, that unlike x-rays, it causes no damage to the fetus. Ultrasound waves are not ionizing, and so they are safe to use when performing a fetal scan. Um, that's what they say. But we don't know that, and probably it's not safe. But there's a lot of things in life that are not safe that we do anyway because we we think they're important. And so we so- choose to do them. Yeah, so you have to use your own judgment and evaluations to to decide, and it's reasonable for you to also decide not to do ultrasounds if that feels right for you. So I loved what you said about limiting how much time someone exposes you to an ultrasound, asking them not to do the Doppler flow, maybe skipping the pictures if those things feel important to you so you can get the clinical information with as little exposure as possible. Again, if you feel comfortable skipping that early ultrasound, because if if you feel like it's not going to change the course of care, that might be a good one to skip because embryology, so the baby's most vulnerable early on, that middle ultrasound, the structural ultrasound around 20 weeks can be very helpful to rule out any anomalies, especially if you're choosing to deliver outside of the hospital and could help you make good decisions. And then as a midwife, you know, we are trained to be able to palpate babies. And so those third trimester ultrasounds, you and I were kind of talking back and forth this week about a woman who posted on social media about feeling like it should be, every woman should have multiple ultrasounds in the last trimester of pregnancy because she had a late-term loss. And uh, although I, I have a lot of empathy for her experience, and I know that it's coming from a place of wanting to support other people and not having the pain that she endured, I do not agree that every person needs to have late-term ultrasounds. We can tell from our hands if a baby is on the growth curve. So if they're if they fall off the growth curve or they have a huge jump, we can tell multiples. We can tell position of the baby. Every once in a while, you have you know something that you're like, I'm just not sure. I can't tell with my hands. And if it's important to you, like in our state, to have the position of the baby be vertex because of the law, then this would be a reasonable choice to get an ultrasound because you may decide to do something different. Um, but in other parts of the of the world, that might not be an important part of, of your pregnancy. And then late-term ultrasounds sometimes can be really helpful and reassuring to both provider and, and family because it can give us the reassurance that the environment looks good. But we also need to understand that ultrasounds are limited. It's been proven that the size can often be a reason why people can be pushed into an induction and those can be off over a pound in either direction. So it's good to know that there are limitations. And, you know, I learned as a student when I was working with you, watching you do ultrasounds, that it's very, a lot of the stuff is really subjective, especially when we're talking about like AFI, the amniotic fluid index. Um, you know, different different providers can measure on the exact same day the same woman and get different numbers. And so there are limitations to this. It's not an exact science. We do get some information and a lot of that information can end up being 
down the road, as I described in my pregnancy, you know, false information that leads us down a path that either is really scary or leads to a lot of interventions. Yeah, they're going to, depending on what the motivation of the practitioner is, they're going to often skew their counseling. I mean, I know for a fact in breech birth that if babies frank breech birth, sometimes amniotic fluid value, values in the low, low range of normal, six, seven, eight. Mm-hmm. Somebody who doesn't know that, who scans, somebody who's going to see a breech baby with an amniotic fluid index of seven, they're going to say the baby has lowish fluid. And that's a reason that we need to schedule your C-section right away. And this is yeah. just what, this is just what they do. So mm-hmm. yeah, there are, but the, again, we talked about the pros at the beginning. Now we're talking about the cons. Um, it's not going to go away. Ultrasound is going to be here. It is a, a great tool when used appropriately. We'll just leave yeah. it at that. And the other thing I wanted to mention, you know, our handheld Dopplers are a form of ultrasound as well, or ultrasound waves. So if this feels like a really important topic to you, um, you can ask that your midwife limit that, have conversations with her about that. I was going to say him or her, but most, most of the time midwives are women. And And there's also something called a fetoscope, which is very similar to a stethoscope. So it listens to the heartbeat of the baby without having to use any of those waves. And that is an option to utilize as well. Okay. All right. So I think we did a good job of redoing (laughs) that topic. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That that will never happen again. You know, sometimes you have to make that mistake to remember (laughs) to never have that mistake happen again and hit hit the the record. Two hundred episodes or something we've been doing on Zoom is pretty good ratios too. You've been doing great. Okay, I feel better. <laughs> so, did you want to tell you want to tell everybody a few a few things about promoting us and stuff that you, you talked about? Yeah, that before? I just you know listen to podcasts all the time, and and people are always talking about what you can do to support the podcast. And when you and I decided to you know rebrand ourselves and to move forward with the podcast a couple of years ago, you know our main intention. You guys should know that we do not make money. From this, the sponsors really pay for our production to be able to put this out. And our heart is really wanting to connect with and expose this information to as many people as possible and hopefully have that societal shift, you know, of, of enough people knowing this information that we could have a big change. So a few things that you can do, obviously, is support our sponsors, Needed and Element. And share that code with your clients and whomever you'd like, because that just supports the the podcast itself. You can uh, subscribe to the podcast and also leave us a review because that helps other people find the podcast, which would be great. And then if there's an episode that really speaks to your heart, please share it with your friends, put it on social media, tag us, because more that people get this information, the more the change that we want to see in the world can happen. And you can write to us at birthing instincts podcast at gmail.com and we may read your letter on on the podcast and we'll try to respond to almost all of them and then you, you can try our google voice our new google voice which is at 805-399-0439 so fun i love it i wanted to end with uh an again interesting, an interesting little uh, uh note from our friends from intentional birth meredith and alicia i love uh, them right this is a quote that they that i got through my email and it says Quote, labor has been called and still is believed by many to be a normal function. Yet it is a decidedly pathologic process. If a woman falls on a pitchfork and drives the handle through her perineum, we call that pathological abnormal. But if a large baby is driven through the pelvic floor, we say that is natural and therefore normal. 
That quote is from Dr. Joseph DeLee in 1920. He sounds like an idiot, by the way. (laughs) In the early 20th century, Chicago obstetrician Joseph DeLee set out to reduce the maternal and infant mortality rate, a very noble intent. Yes. But as we know, quote, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I would add, and stage one thinkers. DeLee proposed preventing problems in labor and birth by intervening before the problems ever developed. The prophylactic approach. During labor and birth, this looked like sedation, episiotomy, and a forceps extraction, which is, by the way, how I was born. (laughs) Then medical management of the third stage, which included manual extraction of the placenta, drugs to make the uterus contract, and repairing the episiotomy site. The quote above comes from an article Dilly published in the American Journal of OBGYN, and it marked a new era in obstetrics, the age of intervention. Not only did Dilly forever alter the landscape of birth, he legitimized the field of obstetrics while leading the charge that drove midwives underground and out of business. Over the course of 100 years, our paradigm shifted from birth as a normal bodily process to birth as a medical event. Let's leave that century behind us as we move into the next 100 years where women reclaim physiologic birth as their right and privilege. May it be so. With love, Meredith and Alicia. Amen. With that, thanks for everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 